But it was really beautiful watching this couple who for seven and a half years have been dating, four and a half years kind of long distance, finally after the whole love is patient, love is kind thing, say their vows and become husband and wife. It was a really, really beautiful thing. And I think that, that is one of the things we prayed for in this church, is we prayed for relationships, we've prayed for marriages. And I want to encourage you to pray, uh, whether that's something you desire or not, or whatever obstacles you might be facing. I want to encourage us to be a church that prays, a church that looks to God for the things we know, a church that believes that he is in control of all things, and trusts him for breakthrough and change. Um, but if you have been here the last two weeks, we've been going through a bit of an Easter um, season as a church, celebrating Palm Sunday and celebrating Resurrection Sunday last week, and just looking at really the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus' death on the cross. He died on the cross in our place for our sins, and then looking at his resurrection, looking at the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering Satan, death in the grave, rising to new life, actually so that you and I could be reconciled to God and live a new life filled by the Spirit and called to do all that God has called us to do. And that really is the heart of the Christian message. It's the heart of the church. It's the heart of what God is doing in this world. And in the book of Acts that we've been going through, that is kind of the engine. That message is the fuel that has driven the church to do everything that it does. So if you are new here, we're going through um, a, a series in the book of Acts. Should I change microphones? Are you guys fine? Sorry, my ears sound a little bit echoey. So, Okay, John's saying a little bit more down. Sorry, Trav. I really hate sing- singling you out. Trav's a hero. He's on the sides. It's not ideal at the moment. He's doing his best to hear. Um, but in the book of Acts, basically you see the church alive. We've called it Jesus Continued because... We want to do what Jesus started, you know. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth, and he preached a message, and he, he called people to himself. And since that day, the church has been carrying on the work of Jesus in this world. So really, for each one of us to be a disciple, it means that we know Jesus, we're following Jesus, and we're carrying on the things that he did in this world. And that really is what the book of Acts is all about. It's about ordinary men and women like you and I. I know some of you are extraordinary. Some of you think you're extraordinary. But ordinary men and women like, ordinary men like me and women like you, (laughs) carrying on what Jesus did in our city today, Durban 2019. And um, I don't know if you know this, but sociologists and historians tell us that by 325 AD, the Roman Empire had become about 56.5% Christian. Started off in Jesus' day about 0.0012% Christian. And the Jesus movement just exploded around the Roman Empire because something about this message captured the hearts and the minds of an entire empire. And that's what I want to speak about today. What does this message do for us? Some of us in this room are maybe exploring Christianity and you're like, well, I've come here a few times. It hasn't gripped me. I don't know. I might try something else. What is it about the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus that is relevant and real and important and powerful every single one of us today? 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years after Jesus started doing it. And also, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe this morning we need a bit of a reminder because it's easy for us to kind of just forget what Jesus has done and also to forget what he is doing in our lives. So we're going to look at that. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Acts 16. If you don't have one and you feel uncomfortable, you can whip out your phone. Everyone will think you're on your Bible app, so you don't have to feel uncomfortable at all. Um, I was joking with Christo today. He was saying we should have free Wi-Fi for the church. I just said, if I could track everything that people were looking at, I'd be horrified. Like, just mind is wandering. You're like, Labrador puppies. Let me look that up. Just check out all sorts of different things. So we're in Acts 16 today, and this is a really amazing passage. 
as it starts, and we're not going to read the beginning of it, what we see is Paul and his kind of apostolic crew, his missionary crew, this team that is going and preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, and just seeing the kingdom of God advance everywhere they go. They're like, where to next, Lord? And they're kind of trying out a few places, and God's like, no, don't go there. No, don't go there. If you're wondering how that happened, we don't really know. It was something of the Holy Spirit's leading internally, saying that's not where you're meant to go, holding them back. And one night as Paul goes to sleep, he has a vision. He sees a man from Macedonia calling him, saying, come, come to me, come to me. And he decides, because he's a very discerning man, that might be where the Lord wants us to go. So they decide they're going to go to Macedonia. Now, for those who are not geography buffins in the room, Macedonia is modern-day southern Serbia and northern Greece. So they were going to Europe with the message of Jesus for the first time. And particularly, they go to a city in Europe called Philippi, which was like a real hub in that area at the time. Now, you might think of Durban as a bit of a hub for Southern Africa, a bit of a port city or harbor city, as we get our name. But it is a place where there's so much trade going on, education coming on. This is like a very cosmopolitan city with people from all around Africa and the world here together for whatever reason they're here. But Philippi was this really interesting place of education. There were tons of students in Philippi. It was a hub for commerce and business. There were technological advancements. There were cultural progress going on. And it was also a very religious and spiritual town. There was a lot of different uh, witchcraft going on, a lot of different kind of religious centers and hubs. It was a very uh, spiritual place, but with very, very little knowledge of the Bible. So you can kind of understand why God would send Paul and his crew there. This was a very strategic urban center for the message of Jesus to take root and to increase and grow and then to spread out from. So we're going to be reading from Acts 16 today and looking at three key gospel conversations. And really what we see is Paul engaging with three people. There would have been many, many more. But we've got to almost ask ourselves, why does the Spirit of God lead Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, just to include these three stories? And I'll tell you the answer at the end, but you can puzzle your way through this as we go through. But we're going to have three stories of three people who hear the message of Jesus in a way that is specific and tailored for them and how it impacts and changes their life. So we're starting in Acts 16, verse 13. This is our first gospel conversation with a woman named Lydia. She's what, if we were to put it in like a category, she'd be called a good woman or maybe a seeker, a spiritual person. And it says this, On the Sabbath day, we, Paul and his crew, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, um, you might not know this, but Paul had a strategy when he went into a new place. He would go into a new city, a new town, a new village, and he would start at the synagogue. So if you've never heard of a synagogue before, this was a Jewish place of worship. This is where Jewish people would come together to worship God, to pray, to learn from the Hebrew scriptures and that sort of thing. But what's interesting about Philippi is they didn't have a synagogue. So what did you need to start a synagogue? You needed 10 Jewish men. So in the city of Philippi, there weren't 10 Jewish men, 10 people following the Jewish faith or interested in the Hebrew scriptures or followers of Yahweh in that way. So there was no synagogue. So I know this sounds a little bit sexist. Since there weren't 10 men, the woman decided, we're going to do this on our own. They went down to the riverside. 
They took the scriptures with them. They'd do Bible study. They'd pray. They'd worship. They'd ask questions. They'd discuss. It's kind of like a little life group situation going on down by the river. And they were learning and growing there. So because there wasn't a synagogue, Paul and his guys go down by the river, and they have kind of a picnic church service over there. And this is where they meet this woman named Lydia. Now, this is what we know about her. She'd done very well for herself in the fashion industry. So I don't know if you're interested in fashion at all, but she was like a fashion mogul. This is like Lydia's business. She was an entrepreneur. She was into clothes. She loved this kind of thing. And she came from a city called Thyatira, which doesn't sound exciting, but it was another huge urban hub, a big port city. And Thyatira was known as a place of purple dye. And that's really important because she was a seller of purple clothing. Now, these days, that doesn't sound like a great business strategy. I sell the purple clothes. But back in the day, this was really, really fancy. Purple clothes were what royalty wore. You know, this was a symbol of royalty. It was a symbol of status. It was really, really expensive. So Lydia was like this high-end fashion goddess. And she was going between these two cities. Potentially, she had a home in both. Thyatira and Philippi. It was probably like uh, fashion people today kind of traveling between New York, London, uh, Milan, Paris, Tokyo, wherever else, you know, going to fashion week, selling their clothes, making connections, all of that. She was up and down between Thyatira and Philippi and other places to make her clothing, to trade, to sell. And she had done very, very well from her business. I need to almost picture her in a sense because these clothing were associated with royalty, sitting on some kind of Philippi fashion week front row, like next to, I don't know, Pharrell Williams and David Beckham or something like that, watching as the purple clothes were modeled past her on the runway. This is the kind of woman she was. She spent time with models, celebrities, royalty, that sort of thing. And she's got a big home. That's how we know she was wealthy. She was able to have all of these people stay with her because she was a woman of means. We don't know if she was married or not, but we do know that she's a very, very wealthy lady. And I think what's so significant about her is despite her obvious success, she's still searching. She's wealthy, she's successful, she's traveling the world, she owns a big home, and she doesn't have everything she's looking for. So she's searching for more. We also know she's religious. So um, Lydia was a woman who decided she wasn't going to worship the Roman gods. They had a whole pantheon of many, many gods, and she said, I'm not going to serve them, I'm actually going to investigate Judaism a bit. So she would go down to the river with these ladies, they'd discuss the Hebrew scriptures, they'd pray, and she was learning the ways of God together with them. She was spending her Sabbath day, rather than going to brunch or something like that, she's like learning about the ways of God, talking about these things with people. She's hungry for a little bit more. I think like if she was around today, we might say she was a seeker, or spiritually curious, or spiritual but not religious, you know, like one of those kind of terms you might hear today. And we also know she's moral. Lydia's a very good person. You know, she's trying to live a good life. She's trying to be a good person. She's trying to do the right thing. But what we find is even though she's in church, even though she's hearing the scriptures, even though she wants to be good, even though in every way it's like her life is together, she doesn't know Jesus. And as Paul comes into the space and starts to speak about Jesus and the good news that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, conquering all of these obstacles and enemies that we face so that you and I could know God and that seeking, that hunger that's inside of Lydia for the meaning of life, for truth, could be satisfied and fulfilled. That's the message Paul preaches and the one she responds to. And she is, as far as we know, the first person to ever be converted to Christianity to begin to follow Jesus in the whole of Europe. That's kind of a claim to fame. 
her and her household begin to serve and follow Jesus that day and are baptized. And it's like God is doing work in a new continent. Very, very cool. And it's interesting because into this space, into this picnic, into this riverside setting, Jesus comes into the life of a woman who's got everything together. She's doing her best. She's doing well. She's hardworking. She's successful. From the outside, everyone would say, I want to be like Lydia. And Jesus comes not into her mess, but into her emptiness to fill her with what she really needs. Jesus comes and meets her where she's at. And it seems that almost God instantly changes her heart. And at the end of this chapter, we notice that the church is meeting in her home. She says to Paul and his crew, you guys can stay with me while you're here, you know, use my house as a base. But when they're leaving, they come back to her house one last time to strengthen the believers because their kind of Sabbath day ritual has moved from the riverside into her home. This is the first church venue in the whole of Philippi. Very, very cool stuff going on. And I wanted you to think about this for a second. Maybe this used to be you. You know, maybe you used to be trying really, really hard to be a good person, trying to do all the right things, trying to tick all of the right boxes, trying to appear successful or strong from the outside, but still there was an emptiness inside of you. And that was your story of Jesus coming into your life and saving you and transforming you. There's a couple of people in this room that that is their story. Or maybe for you, that's your story today. You've come in here today and you're empty and you need him. You know there's a search for more. You're trying everything you can to enjoy the fullness of life you believe is out there, but you're still missing it. Jesus wants to come into your emptiness to fill it. The second gospel conversation in this chapter is with a slave girl. So if we were to put her into a category, she's definitely spiritual. We'll find out a little bit more about this just now. But we'd probably say she's the sinful person. She's someone who's in a bit of darkness. And the passage says this from verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, just note that quickly, and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It sounds like really good press. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and they were imprisoned. They were jailed. Now, probably the funny thing about this is I've started out saying there's a number of us who are like Lydia in this room. There's probably not too many of us who are owned by slaves, sorry, are slaves, are demon-possessed, and we're fortune tellers in the room today. If that's you, you're like, this is the word of God to me. This is my message, you know. I didn't know the Bible was so tailored to me today. Maybe in that day and age, there were more people that kind of fitted into that box. But I think there is a root here that a lot of us can relate to. Whether it was by this girl's decision or by the decisions of other people, she's entered into a life of sin and immorality and brokenness and darkness. And now she finds herself demon-possessed under the influence of these negative dark forces and also owned by men who are using her to earn an income. She is their property. And now, I think like we look at this, her life is broken. It's broken spiritually, it's broken emotionally, it's broken physically, it's broken financially. Her life is a mess. And it's almost like Luke has compared these two women at the start. You've got a woman whose life is all together, and you've got a woman whose life is completely fallen apart right next to each other. Uh, Lydia is like the dream. 
Lydia's got it all together. She's driven, brilliant, savvy, wealthy, well-known, well-respected, and empty. And Jesus steps into that mess to save her and bring her life. And then right after that, we've got this unnamed slave girl. And her life is a complete mess. It's completely broken. And we don't know the backstory here. I think this is where I wish we had all of the detail. But she's a young girl who's owned by older men. So what happened to her, you know? Was she maybe an orphan, like her parents died when she was young, and she was taken over by these men who used her when she was young, maybe at first as a prostitute, used by men for her body and for their pleasure, and maybe over time as kind of the darkness in her life grew, as sin grew, and it was almost the influences of demons kind of grew in her life, actually they started to speak through her, and they realized maybe this girl has got a gift of fortune telling. We can make money from this rather than selling her body to make our income. And they started to earn more from the fortune-telling than they had from the prostitution before. And this little girl whose life is, she's only known brokenness. She's only known slavery. She's only known being used by others. Now finds herself in this kind of fortune-telling space. She's in a double bondage. She's in bondage to these men who own us. And she's in bondage to the spiritual world that is controlling her and using her for their purposes. And into her mess, Jesus steps too. Now, I think this is quite powerful. So I think some of us in this room are like, I have no way to relate to Lydia. Like, life altogether, good person, never made a mistake, done everything right. Like, that's not my story. My story's a little bit darker. I've got a past. I've done some stuff. I've seen some things. And maybe, like, you would not want to share some of the things you've done or been through or experienced before. The slave girl has got something to say to all of us, you know. She's experienced the worst. She's experienced darkness. She's experienced abuse. She's experienced demonic forces. She's experienced the influence of mankind. She's experienced tough things. So maybe where Jesus comes to Lydia in her put-together life, Jesus comes to the slave girl in her brokenness and her darkness and pulls her out. And I want to say that because if you find yourself in some kind of darkness today, whether it's a darkness of sin or a darkness of decisions you've made now or in the past, or the darkness of what others have done to you, Jesus can come into that darkness and bring his life. I think probably the confusing thing in this passage is that this woman seems to be excited about the gospel, though. And some of you might be sitting there going, Grant, like, I get your understanding, but like, she's really backing the preaching of the gospel. She's saying they are the ones who know the way to the Most High God. They are the ones who know the way to salvation. You're like, you haven't got it. She's saved. But really, there's something else going on here. She seems like a hype woman saying, like, listen to the preaching. The good news is what it's all about. But actually, she's confusing people. That's why Paul gets cross. He doesn't get cross because she's like, listen to this message. He gets cross because everyone is being confused about what is true and what is right. Because they are hearing Paul's message. But Paul's biggest supporter is this woman they know who's involved in the occult, is a slave, is speaking for these demons as a fortune teller. And they're starting to say, well, what does Paul believe and what does she believe? Like, are they part of the same group? Is this team Jesus? Like, what is the story here? And like almost the waters are getting muddied around what is truth? What is the message of Jesus? Because if what Paul is preaching is the same thing that we've seen in her, we don't want anything to do with that, you know? So Paul's getting really, really frustrated about this. And eventually he has to respond to and cast the demon out. And I asked you to listen to a phrase that I read there. It was the phrase, a spirit of divination. Now, if you were to dive into the original language there, the translation would be spirit python, 
which sounds so weird. Can, we can just own that is a very, very weird thing. So I want to get into a little bit of mythology with you for a second. According to the mythology around this, the Python was the person or the being that protected Apollos' temple. Now, if you know of Apollo, he was the son of Zeus, Zeus being the chief god. So in a sense, Apollo was the son of God. You can kind of understand how this message was getting a little bit muddied, you know. So Python was there protecting the temple of Apollo, and Python would speak for Apollo or speak for the gods. So this word Python became over time the word that was used for people who were filled with the spirit and spoke for the Python or for Apollo. So this girl was a Pythoness. She was this clairvoyant person who would sometimes speak in weird sounds and weird voices and weird accents of these voices that were meant to be coming from the gods. That is why this broken, abused slave girl was able to fetch so much money for her owners because she was believed to speak for the gods. They went to her to get a word from heaven. They wanted to know what their future would hold. They wanted to know about their fortunes. They wanted to know what decisions to make. And she would have this Python spirit speak through her and give them some kind of direction and leadership. And that's why Paul's getting frustrated. People are like, well, is Paul speaking for Python? Is she speaking for Jesus? How does all of this work? And remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about the way Satan works. We said he's the father of lies, that he's an enemy who's been conquered by Jesus. He no longer has power in himself. All he can do to trick us is to lie. This is what we see happening here. Satan is coming with lies and distortion and twisting the truth to divide a wedge between man and God so that people get confused. And I want to say that everywhere the message of Jesus has gone in the world, something like this has happened. Satan has come to twist the truth, to confuse people, to muddy the waters so that people don't know what's real and what's false, so that people are led down a false path away from Jesus. And Harbor City, I want to warn us if I can today The reality is, in our day, we can get more Bible information than ever before in the world on our phones or our laptops or whatever it is. If you Google any question you've got, you'll get tons of answers that pop up on YouTube and podcasts and blogs and blogs and every sort of source you want. Some of them are really, really helpful, and some of them aren't. The reality is, Satan would love to lead every one of us astray and muddy the truths of the message of Jesus with his lies and slight, subtle distortions of the truth. So I really want to call us to be a discerning church who knows the Bible and knows what it says for ourselves so that actually we can follow Jesus into what he's got for us, which is so good, rather than be led astray by some of these lies. In the end, what's going on with this woman is becoming a distraction. And what I like about the Bible is it's so honest about human nature. You know, Probably if you or I were writing this out, we'd say, Paul was slightly perturbed by what was going on, so he asked the Lord to... No, Paul gets annoyed. Paul's so frustrated with her after days and days of her kind of frustrating and distracting everything. He just turns around, he's like, come out of her. You know, he's so cross about all of this, he loses his temper. It's not like a godly moment, but God still uses it to set this woman free. And I wanted to say to all of us today that if Jesus can set this Pythoness free from this powerful spirit that is at work in her life, he can set you free from the things that are holding you captive. If you are bound by something today, if it's sin, if it's darkness, if it's lies, if it's something demonic or spiritual or powerful, God can set you free. Maybe it's something you've been stuck with for a long, long time, something you feel like you just can't overcome. Jesus can set you free from that to enter into a new life. You can be free today. Maybe some of you would relate more to her story than to Lydia's. 
Maybe some of you have been set free in the past from things. Maybe today you're realizing, I need Jesus to come into the messiness of my life to set me free. The third uh, gospel conversation is with a jailer. If we were to put him into a category, he would be probably the spiritually apathetic guy. He doesn't seem that interested in God or spirituality at all. And he would be the hard person. And we'll see why in just a second. Acts 16 verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas are going about doing their ministry. They're preaching. They're interacting with people. And then they seem to frustrate uh, the owners of the slave girl because now the spirit has gone from her. It's been cast out. There's no more fortune telling. There's no more income for them. So they're cross. And they call the cops and they beat them with rods and strip them naked and they put them into prison. But what's quite tough about this is they don't just get put into jail. They get put into the innermost cell. So this jailer who receives them doesn't just throw them into the nearest cell. He's a bit sadistic. He's a bit twisted. He decides he's going to put them in the innermost cell just at the bottom of the prison where all of the feces and waste of the prisoners trickles down and rests. And imagine the stench in that place. And imagine just walking in what lined the floor of that place. It was a disgusting place to be. They didn't need to be there. He chose to put them there. And not only does he put them in that cell, but he chains them up and kind of hangs them from the roof in the stocks so that not only do they deal with the stench of this place, but also they're really, really uncomfortable and in agony in the cell that he's chosen to put them in. This is torture. And he doesn't do it by order, he does it by desire. What kind of man is this that he wants to treat people this way? You know, Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I just want to ask you, if this was you, you've been serving Jesus faithfully, Team Jesus, here we go, preaching on the streets, doing some kind of, I don't know, marketplace evangelism or whatever it is. You're tossed in jail. You're covered in poo-poo and pee-pee. I don't know. I'm trying to just censor it like a little bit, make it like a little bit more appealing. You're being like tortured and you're in this uncomfortable position. And you're just like, you know what? It's a good place to praise God. I just want to sing some songs of praise. I just want to get my prayer on right now. I don't know how many of you, I, I really don't think that would be me. I'd be muttering, I'd be complaining, I'd be like, God, where are you? What's going on? This is a nightmare. How dare you do this to me? I'm trying to serve you and you put me through this. But Paul and Silas are there praising God in the midst of their suffering. If you remember a few weeks ago in Acts 12, Peter is in prison waiting to be executed the next day and he's asleep. Why? Because he trusts God. God's sovereign over his life. If he's going to die, he's going to die. If God's going to rescue him, he'll rescue him. Here Paul and Silas are in prison. They don't know what their future looks like. They're not sleeping. They're just like, let's just praise God. Have a little midnight prayer sesh, praise sesh. Just enjoy him together in the cell. It's amazing just the understanding that God is in control, that God rules and reigns. He is better than my circumstances. He is better than my suffering. And just being able to praise him in whatever situation. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That must have been insane. Can you imagine you're kind of dozy, like rubbing your eyes with the earthquake. Next thing, poof, cells are open, your shackles come off, you're free, you know. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all who were in his house, and this kind of mean, twisted, sadistic man, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You know what I really love about this story and the story of the slave girl? Is that God is able to make chains fall off of your life. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I feel like God does want to bring freedom to some people today. Maybe it's freedom to concerns, freedom to things that are weighing you down, freedom to fears or discouragement, freedom to actually lies that are on your life. I think whatever you feel maybe is holding you down or holding you back, God wants to set you free today. They were set free. The earthquake supernaturally breaks open the prison doors. The shackles fall off and they're free to go. Now, I want you just to imagine what you would do if that had happened to you. You've been in this horrible situation, the smell, the torture, the discomfort, all of that. Next thing, the doors pop open and the chains come off. What would you do? You'd run out. You'd be out of there. If it was me, I would be straight out of there, run past the guard, probably pull rude signs at him or something like that, just so he knows I haven't appreciated his hospitality. Get out of there to freedom because I don't want to be there anymore. And I would do it very gladly knowing that he would be executed for letting the prisoners get out. You can imagine Paul being stoked, like, yes, he's beaten me in the streets, he's put me in the cell, he's chained me up, now I'm out of here and he's going to die for what he's done. Justice, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, you know. But Paul doesn't. Paul realizes that the jail cells bursting open isn't about his freedom, but it's about the jailer's freedom. It's not about his salvation, it's about the jailer's salvation. So he waits in this prison cell, the jailer, to realize what's going on about to kill himself because he knows he's going to die anyway. And Paul says, just wait. We're all here. It's a moment of gospel demonstration. These guys are showing that actually the freedom they had is in Christ. It's not in the prison. They were in the prison in chains, but they were completely free because Christ had set them free. Even in this incredible discomfort they were in, they were comfortable. They were comforted by Christ. He is our comfort. Not being free from a prison cell. So they could have stayed there for days. They would have been fine. But they wanted to show this jailer that what they had in Jesus was greater than the freedom they had outside of the prison cell. And the jailer can't believe it. He says, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? And they share with him a little bit more about this Jesus and this man's heart has changed. The man who beat them in the streets and really treated them terribly in the stocks and in the cell is now cleaning their wounds. He's cleaning their bodies up. He brings them upstairs to his family. They hear about Jesus and start to follow him. They all get baptized, and he makes this meal, and they celebrate together the grace of God. This is an incredible night, you guys. <laughs> I don't know what your evenings look like. I haven't had one of those ever. But I need you to understand, this man was a tough man. He was put in charge of prison after being a Roman soldier for a long time. This was almost like his um, retirement package. You get this jail, it'll earn you an income after all of the things that you've done at war. This man would have seen some stuff. He would have probably killed many, many people. He would have seen many friends die. He would have been part of the violence and aggression of war. 
coming home from all of that, you can imagine how he could have been really, really hardened. Heart was hard, going through post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Now as the prisoners come into his cell, he treats them so violently and so roughly because of all that he has gone through. And as he hears about Jesus, something just changes in his heart. The man who hours before was beating and torturing these men is now caring for, bandaging, feeding, loving them, not as prisoners, but as brothers. The gospel radically changes our hearts. We see this man who's so hardened and bitter and angry and hurt by life. Now he's filled with the compassion of God and starts to show grace to the people around him. It's what the message of Jesus can do in us. And I was thinking about this passage and thinking about its relevance for us today. I don't know if you would say you're maybe in the good person camp or the sinful person camp or the hardened person camp. Maybe you feel like you're in a different one. But I was thinking about how these are our stories. These three stories are our stories. We um, do a new members course about twice a year. And every time we do that, we ask the people who would like to become members of this church to write out their story, their testimony, how the gospel has impacted and changed them. And we do it in part to understand that they know what the gospel is, because often people just talk about these highlights with God. And also we want to know how the gospel is changing people from the inside out. And I was just thinking about the stories that have come through from our last course or two or three. These are the stories. These are your testimony. This is the stories of Harbor City we've read about here. People who have been successful but are not satisfied. People who have been in bondage to sin, sexual sin, bondage to what people think of them, bondage to performance, bondage to, I guess, the things that enslave us in this world, being set free by Jesus. People who have been in shame and guilt over what they've done and what's been done to them, being forgiven and washed clean. People who grew up in Christian homes, who were so spiritually apathetic, didn't care about this at all until they encountered Jesus and he changed their life forever. These are the stories of the men and women in this room. This is what Jesus is doing in our lives. And what I love about the gospel is it's got something to say to every single one of us. When Paul comes into contact with these people, he doesn't have to preach something different. He just thinks about where this person is at and what the message of Jesus has to say to them. So when he comes to Lydia, the good person, the spiritual seeker, Paul teaches the truth of the Bible. He shows her the wisdom and the truth of Jesus and reveals spiritual truth for her, and she becomes a follower of Jesus. When Paul encounters this demon-possessed slave girl, the sinful person, he shows the power and authority of Jesus that can set her free from the things that hold her back. And when he encounters this jailer, this hardened, spiritually apathetic person, he demonstrates the gospel. He shows him how this is lived out. And this seems to melt his heart. Now, while he becomes a prisoner to preach to the jailer, he shows the comfort and satisfaction that he can have in Jesus even when in such a tough prison situation. And this is the first church planted in Europe, these people that we've heard about today. Lydia, the slave girl, this jailer, and his household. And they would have been in the community meeting in Lydia's house from that point on. I want to end with one thing. Why did Luke choose these three stories? There were a lot of people who would have heard about Jesus in Europe. There were a lot of people they would have shared with, a lot of stories they could have told. Why did Luke choose these three? Every morning, a Jewish man would wake up and he would pray a prayer out of the Siddur. It was a Jewish prayer book. And he'd say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. (laughs) No offense. Most of us in this room are probably Gentiles, so probably all in the same boat. 
But I want you to think about the three people that we've just read about. A woman, a slave, and a Roman jailer, a Gentile. It's like Luke is wanting us to see, as the gospel goes into a new place, that this message is for everyone. It's not just for some people, it's for everyone. This message is for all of us. And for us in South Africa, this is a message we need to hear. The message of Jesus is not just for some people, it's for everyone. And this little church which is starting in this area of Philippi, now all of a sudden has these three people who would normally never have been together meeting in Lydia's home every single week for communion, to pray, to worship, to learn, to hang out together. Three people that naturally and normally wouldn't want to spend time together. Now because of Jesus, they've been brought together and they've formed into a completely new family in him. There's this verse in Galatians 3 verse 28 that says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think what God is wanting to say to us today is that he is drawing all mankind to himself to know him in one new family in Jesus. Whether you are rich or poor, black or white, young or old, conservative or liberal, religious or irreligious, whether you're from a good family or a very broken family, whether you're white color or blue color, whatever language you speak, whatever other kind of dividing lines you might see, we're all united in the fact that sin is our main obstacle. And we're all united in the fact that if we come to Jesus, he can set us free. And he is wanting to bring one new, diverse, beautiful, big family together in this venue and all around South Africa as these bastions of the gospel, just these like outposts of the kingdom of God shining the truth of the gospel that brings very different people together in him and makes them family. Can we stand together? And we're going to pray, and we're going to go out singing. I really want to pray for freedom today. So if you don't mind closing your eyes, I ask you, Holy Spirit, even now, to come upon us as a church. We know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I just would love you to respond to God in the way you need to today, if you need to be free of anything. If you know that there's something that you need to be free of or want to be free of, something you can't stop doing, something that is binding you, I'd love you to bring it before the Lord now. Holy Spirit, I just pray you'd come upon us and set us free. Just think of that earthquake, just opening doors and dropping off shackles. And I... I thank you that in Christ an earthquake cuts through our lives, breaking open those doors and breaking up shackles. And I pray you do it in this room now, Lord. I pray this church would be a free people. I pray this church would not be weighed down by sin and mistakes and darkness and messiness and junk. I thank you that you would make us new and that we'd experience the newness of what you've done. And even now, Lord, I pray you'd lift burdens off of us. You'd lift fear off of us. You'd lift weight off of us. You'd lift lies off of us. I pray that we would come into the freedom of your truth in a new way today, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with freedom? And I pray, Lord God, as there are all of these things that divide us in this country, even now I pray you would tear them down in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. I pray that this church would be one, that we would be one in you, united through what you've done. I thank you, Lord, that this church would show the gospel to the city of Durban in our relationships, in our love for one another, in the new family that you're shaping in the school hall. We pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives, we pray.